Blog Talk Radio. Welcome all true seekers from across the globe. This is Reverend Karen L. Heasley from the Spiritual Path Church of Newcastle, Pennsylvania in the United States. Our true seeker show covers a variety of subjects from angels to afterlife communication to parapsychology to spiritualism to near-death experiences to meditation and a number of other true seeking topics. We are happy you have chosen to join us for this episode and hope you find it informative and enjoyable. Now, we're going to have a really jam-packed show tonight, so get a piece of paper and a pencil so you can call in with all your questions. And here's the number, 657-383-0416. I'm going to repeat that again, 657-383-0416. Tonight's guest is Lloyd Aubach. He is a world-recognized paranormal expert with thousands of media appearances and the author or co-author of nine paranormal books. So I'm going to bring him on, and he's going to talk a little bit about himself. Hi, Lloyd. Hi there, Karen. How are you? We're so happy you could join us tonight, and we want to... Um, get the scoop about everything you're doing. And uh, so my first question, I guess, is how you got into this. Well, you know, it's kind of hard to say exactly. I can tell you the practically how I got into it, but my interest actually goes back to um, being a very little, little kid. Uh, my dad worked for NBC and I had a TV set in my room when I was probably about two years old. Oh, so I, watch shows like One Step Beyond, which dramatize psychic experiences and The Twilight Zone, of course, and shows like that. And then I also read, was a voracious reader of science fiction and comic books, uh, all of which dealt with psychic powers and psychic abilities. Uh, and then there were a couple of early ghost shows, um, you know, scripted shows like Topper and, of course, The Ghost mm-hmm. of the Viewer, which had an influence on me yes. before. That was before Dark Shadows and Star Trek sent me running to the library to read books on parapsychology. <laughs> <laughs> when I was about 12. So I, you know, I really, um, I had almost an academic interest in the subject because I was a little science geek and it was great to discover that there actually were researchers, scientists who were doing research on the subject for quite some time, actually. Um, I was very fortunate to have teachers in high school who were also interested. In fact, we had a parapsychology club in my high school in Elmsford, New York, when I was growing up. And then I, when I studied anthropology in college at Northwestern, I had, uh, I, I was intending to focus on supernatural folklore because that was a good understanding of how people perceive this phenomena, these experiences. And I also had some professors who were very interested in the subject yet again and got to meet a couple of parapsychologists in Chicago who pointed me towards John F. Kennedy University in California, which at the time had a parapsychology program, unfortunately no more. So I was able to get my master's in parapsychology. So it kind of things fell into place for me all along the way. That's uh, that's amazing that you had that in your high school, though. That's the first time I ever heard something like that in a high school. There, there. I think right now there probably are other clubs, ghost hunting clubs mostly, because I've heard or mm-hmm. paranormal clubs. I've heard of that from schools, but back then. Um, there might have been others. I, I don't know that, that there were any others. I certainly never found out that, about that. But part of it was because of my, you know, I was reading these books that were relatively academic. And right. one of my neighbors was a yoga teacher, and she happened to have a, uh, a student, yoga student, who was a parapsychologist, uh, Montague Ullman, a well-known one at that time, who introduced me to other parapsychologists. Wow. So, Growing up in the New York area was great at the time because I, I actually, in my high school years, was able to meet and talk with some people who later became my, you know, my senior colleagues. Yeah. Um, it was like the universe was kind of pushing me in that direction almost no matter what I did. Well, they certainly push you in the right direction because you surely have a passion for it, I have to say. So I didn't mention 
uh, your books, but I'd like you to talk about some of the books that you author and co-author. Could you do that for our audience? Sure. Please? Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll kind of start um, sort of backwards. So the, the two that came out um, more recently, I have one called Psychic Dreaming, which is a, a kind of a revamp and a somewhat update, updated version of, one of, of an earlier book called Psychic Dreaming. But that came out in 2017, and that looks at people's dreams in general and what they might mean to us and even how what some of the theories in science happen to be about dreaming, but focuses mainly on the kinds of dreams people have that we would call psychic. So whether they are precognitive, uh, you know, telling the future or even telepathic with other people, we covered quite a bit of ground in that book. And a couple months later, I put out a reissue of my 1996 book, one of my favorites that I've ever written called Mind Over Matter, which deals with exactly that, the, the concept of mind affecting matter. But I took it from the perspective of we still don't know, of course, we still don't know what consciousness or mind is, and our minds affect our bodies. So I really kind of looked at it from the, the perspective of self-harm and self-healing um, ex- extraordinary sports performance. My dad was a sports producer, so I de- had a whole chapter on sports performance in relation to our minds and how much mm-hmm. our minds can push us. Uh, but then, of course, covered the ability that people have to either affect or move objects, covering psychic healing, covering our, our effects, positive and negative, on our technology around us. And they even included a chapter on faking it. Um, so you can kind of understand some of the things that are out there um, are not really real. Um, I've written a bunch of books on ghosts and that whole area. My first one, my first very first book, which I reissued in 2016, is called ESP Hauntings and Poltergeists, and it is available on Amazon, both as a Kindle book and, and uh, paperback again. And that was kind of my magnum opus to get started, and it was an outgrowth of the popularity of Ghostbusters. In fact, I probably yeah. never would have sold that book if I hadn't if it hadn't been for Ghostbusters at the time. That's a great book. Um, thank you, thank you. Um, it is. I enjoyed writing it. Uh, it it's kind of almost kind of hard to follow up, <laughs> follow it, um, because there's so much that I included in it. Uh, but I did write a book um, called "The Ghost Detective's Guide to Haunted San Francisco" with a psychic medium by the name of Annette Martin, who passed away, unfortunately, just shortly after the book came out in 2011. Oh, and Annette mm-hmm. and I had worked together for, for almost 20 years doing investigations. Uh, and that book, um, even though it's focused on San Francisco, it takes a look at several places, public places, and how a parapsychologist and a medium work together in the investigations. Um, I think the the best comment we got from a couple people, actually from several people, was they felt like they were with us on the investigation, the way it was written. So uh, that was well, very something. high praise indeed. Yeah. Yes. That's. And then I also co- uh, co-wrote a book um, which came out uh, in 2014 and then again in 2016 with a new publisher called ESP Wars, East and West. Um, I was written with Ed May and Victor Rubel and Joseph McMonagall and this book is an important book uh, in that it answers a lot of the questions that about what was really going on with the Stargate program, our, our remote viewing program yes, uh, I read that the that. government sponsored for many years. But also it's the only book that has contributions from Russians, uh, from folks, uh, several Russians in the military and the KGB, who contributed interviews and, and material to the book explaining what the Soviets were doing, what the Russians were actually doing. And, you know, it's timely because we keep hearing, you know, I think there was some just recent stuff in the news about some Russian military guy who made some claims about what was going on during that whole period. And it's, it's some of it's contradictory to the four or five people we, who we heard from who Ed May and, and, Victor Rubel and Joe McMonagall got to know very well. So I, I tend to believe our sources rather than what we're seeing now. Uh, Ed was the actual program director for the Stargate program at, for 11 years and had been with it since 1975, so for most of its, occur- its existence. And Joe McMonagall was the number one remote viewer for the program. Oh. So we have some of the best, the best resources and sources yes. in our book than, uh, th- of any of those books. Um, do you mind sharing with the audience 
what um, they actually did in that program, the Stargate program. I know it's remote viewing, but sometimes people don't really understand that. So remote viewing is a fancy term for clairvoyance, for the idea that we can pick up information um, hidden from us. So whether it is thing in an envelope, which is not obviously remote, that we Mm -hmm. might be holding, um, or it might be something in another room, or when you were talking about remote viewing, we're really talking about perception of something that's distant, you know, a few okay. miles to hundreds of miles to thousands of miles. And uh, the folks who started it, Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, um, had done some research with people who claimed and seemed to be able to perceive distant locations with, with fairly good accuracy on a fairly regular basis. I mean, nobody can do this like 100% of the time, all the time. Mm-hmm. So um, he was able to, uh, they were able to actually show some potential funders from the CIA and the Department of Defense that this could have positive applications for basically espionage, for spying, mm-hmm. for understanding what the, what the Soviets were doing at the time, at any given time. Uh, they also did a little precognitive remote viewing, so th- things that were happening often in the future. And over the years, um, what was in- really interesting for me is, as someone on the outside of that program is that uh, those of us in the field suspected something was going on government-wise, and we actually knew there was because these guys could not talk about everything they were doing mm-hmm. at SRI and at, at the other old locations. But at the same time, they were publishing research. They were doing the, the, res, the research for the government and they were doing the exact same research with different targets or tasks with some of the same people, but generally with different people that was written up in the journals in parapsychology journals. So we knew about the success of remote viewing, even though we didn't know what was going on with the military side of it. Specifically the military side of it was <clears throat> what they were asked to view or, or what they actually got. So that's what was classified. It wasn't that they were doing it. In other words, it wasn't how they were doing it. It was what they did. You know, somebody said, um, we need you to focus on this location. Here's some latitude and longitude coordinates, or here's, some, here's a number that represents those coordinates or that location. We're not going to tell you what, what this means, but use your psychic ability to focus on this anyway and tell us what's there. And that, that was actually happening. A um, lot of, obviously, a lot of... Um, controversy when the program was revealed in 1995. The skeptics were all over it, saying it wasn't useful. Um, The CIA actually, for the last two years, had, because a new administration actually saw that as a a program they could get rid of if they didn't assess it properly, and we have evidence that they clearly did not assess it properly. Um, Ed May likes to say that over the years, they were given tasks by, by, I think it was something like uh, 17 or 18 agencies, maybe even more, different, different federal agencies, including the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the Department of Defense, and other organizations within the federal government. And the majority of them came back multiple times for more tasks. And he said, if it didn't work, why would they come back and ask us again? That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so actually Ed is in the process right now of publishing. In fact, there are three volumes out there. People are really interested. You know, the CIA has their new um, archive. They declassified a huge amount of data, and most of the Stargate stuff, although some, a good part of it's redacted, uh, most of it's actually up on the CIA's um, site for people hmm. to download and retrieve. Um, Ed and his co- one of his colleagues have actually published two volumes so far. The third one's coming out very shortly, um, where they've found, you know, they've kind of got rid of the departmental memos and some of the, you know, the administrative stuff, and they're kind of focusing on the actual remote viewings and some of the politics, uh, some of the political memos <clears throat> that are of interest to people, and they're publishing them as archives. So there's two volumes out already, and they're very dense with a lot of data, a lot of good stuff. And uh, some pretty eye-opening political commentary also in, in these things, um, in these archives. And they're eventually going to publish five volumes. Um, I'm, Ed got a data dump of this well before the CIA put it out to the public. 
So I actually have it on my computer. I have 90,000 pages on my oh. computer oh my. Of the, from this project. Yeah, and his, his co-editor, Sonali Marwaha, who's over in India, has actually read every single page. Oh, so my she's, word. So um, she's at this, this point the most knowledgeable on the program. Yes, that's, that's something. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. And, and I, I wanted you on the program because um, I wanted you to actually discuss about parapsychology and parapsychologists. Mm-hmm. The general public really doesn't know. Like you started your book out, the one was, what do we investigate? So I, right. I would like you to just take us down a path because you're so knowledgeable about this. And I, I like to get the people to understand really what a parapsychologist is and what they're not, you know, because you're okay, linked sometimes sure. things you shouldn't be linked with. Does that make sense? You know? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. Yeah. There's a lot of misinformation. A lot of it comes actually from the 1960s and seventies when publishers were publishing almost anything by anybody who claimed anything, you know, whether it was mm-hmm. with UFOs yeah. or Atlantis or parapsychology. So there was a whole, you know, it was kind of the beginnings of the so-called new age, but it was this huge, publication thing that was going on. So um, parapsychology is the fancy name for studying effects or interactions of consciousness of our minds with the world around us that don't have to do directly with our physical senses and that don't have to do with our physical body. In other words, moving things or affecting things by with your hands or with instruments and also deals with the very heart of the question, what is consciousness and can it exist without the body? So life after death, do we deal mm-hmm. with? We study, we study extrasensory, extrasensory perception. So it's perception, that means information that we get without the use of the senses, without logical inferment, inference, without guesswork. Um, people, there's clairvoyance, which is real-time information that comes in. There's precognition that's knowing about it before it happens. And there's telepathy, which is connecting with other people's emotions and mind, you know, the mindsets that we've got. And we study psychokinesis, <clears throat> which we often call PK, which is a fancy term, again, for mind over matter. Actually, most people know it as telekinesis, but yeah, that word... Okay. Um, that, yeah, you know, moving things, but with your mind, mm-hmm. but yes. that's part of what psycho, part of what psychokinesis is, but that's not all of it. Um, because telekinesis means movement at a distance and, or action at a distance. And that's, that is what we're doing, but we don't just move things or create action. We actually do, people do psychic healing. They heal themselves. They heal other people. That's a form of mind matter or mind energy interaction. Um, psychokinesis involves affecting technology at the very microscopic level and maybe even below that. There are experiments looking at quantum effects, for example, of the mind, the mind affecting things at the quantum level. Um, psychokinesis involves literally er- any time that you have an action of the mind and intention on things around you at any level of, of size of reality. That's psychokinesis. It's not just about moving objects. Um, and in fact, in the laboratory, we have two different ways of looking at it. We have, we have something called micro PK where we're setting up very controlled experiments at an, at a molecular atomic or even subatomic level. Um, and the idea is the mo- somebody's intention affects that level of size and that kind of bubbles up to a display on a screen that's called micro PK. And that may be what we're doing when we screw up our phones and our computers and things. And then we also look at macro PK, which is the idea of whether it's metal bending or moving objects or even healing can be considered a macro PK effect because we do work with psychic healing and such. That's all psychokinesis. And the third area is survival of bodily death. The idea that consciousness might exist without the, the brain, without the body and survive the death of the body and still be capable of interaction. Uh, and even within my field, that's a controversial subject. Not everybody in my field who studies ESP and PK believes that consciousness can survive the death of the body. So we, we have different ways of looking at the phenomena we call ghosts and hauntings and poltergeists as well. So we study all those things in the laboratory, and we study them outside the laboratory where they occur in real life. 
uh, and real life informs the experiments and the findings we have from the experiments help us with our investigations of real life. Okay. So I, <clears throat> one thing that you did bring out in the book is when sometimes people call you, the first thing mm-hmm. they say is, hey, hey you're going to think I'm crazy when I tell you this. But this <clears throat> happened. Yeah. You, you yeah. know, so, I mean, and I understand that. So can you sort of go through when uh, the process of when somebody calls and they had some type of uh, um, ex- psychic experience or maybe not a psychic experience, but they think it is? So can you go through what you would need the person? Well, yeah, I, you know, a lot of times, first of all, we have people sending us emails all the time in the field about their experiences, asking for an explanation or an understanding. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, everybody has some form of psychic experience. Well, I wouldn't say everybody. Most people have some form of psychic experience. Probably one of the most common is, and this, of course, is not counting caller ID, but knowing who's on the phone before the phone even rings. Rings, okay. Uh, that's, that's a common experience that people have had for decades. Uh, people have other fairly common psychic experiences. And, and you know, they have dreams that, that a relative is in trouble or is dying or is going to die. They might have an experience of um, just simply stopping short because they feel like, oh, this doesn't feel right to go down the street. Let me take, an, take a right turn and go a different way without even thinking about it. That could be an unconscious thing. So we have all these normal things that happen. And people ask for explanations of that. So we can give them some information about ESP and even psychokinesis when things potentially move around or their, their technology doesn't work very well because they're in a stressed out situation. When it comes to kind of bigger things, like people think they may have seen a ghost or an apparition, what we call an apparition, or have some weird things going on in their home, we do have to do extensive interviewing up front to get some idea of when it happened, uh, who was around, like are there other witnesses, what did you see, what did you experience, what do you think it is. So we have to go through an interview process. Um, uh, we don't just run out like so many ghost hunters do who watch the TV shows. They'll, you know, if they hear something, they'll just say, okay, I'm coming right out because they are so – desperate to be like their TV heroes and go to these, go to somebody's house or a public place that they, they won't even question whether or not there was something really going on. Mm-hmm. Um, for us, you know, we can, I can, somebody calls me and says that they saw. So last year um, they woke up in the middle of the night and they saw their uncle standing at the, at the foot of the bed. And the next morning they found out their uncle died in the middle of the night. All right. That kind of experience is not unusual, although usually it happens when people are awake, not when they're asleep. It doesn't usually wake them up. So they want to know if I can come out and investigate or we can send some investigators out. And the answer to that is no, we don't, because that is the most common kind of ghostly experience. Having an experience with someone who is either in the process of dying, typically just died, or within typically 72 hours of the person's death. Friends, relatives, loved ones might see or experience that person in some way as if the person is saying goodbye or as if your mind is letting you know that this is happening. There's nothing to investigate. Um, that, person, that person's uncle has moved on. Uh, there's not, the person's uncle is not sticking around. So we have to, again, part of the process is explanation, is, is providing people with an understanding that this is – that kind of experience is actually not paranormal. It's normal. It's within the normal range of people's experiences. It happens mm-hmm. so frequently that you really can't, you can, might call it rare. Certainly it's rare in, in one person's life, but across the population, it's not even that rare. It's more common than a lot of other experiences people have with, with the rest of the world. So we're looking to see whether it's current, whether things are still going on, we do ask questions as to um, what's, what is happening, what's going on in the area. A lot of times I can figure out on the phone that they're just making a mistake about something that has a normal explanation. Um, I don't consider people stupid for this. Uh, none of us do. There are things that happen around us that we just don't have the understand the best explanation for, or we were in a, you know, you just watched a horror movie. So something happened and all of a sudden you think that that was, that was a ghost. Um, 
after the 89 earthquake here in the Bay Area, it was kind of interesting. We were getting a lot of calls from people who said, you know, I know there's no aftershock that caused this because I checked. And people in the Bay Area are well aware that if something happens, you know, something moves or something falls after a major earthquake, you check to see if there was an aftershock before you make any Mm -hmm. other decision. So people were telling me that, that it was definitely not an aftershock. But what it was is in San Francisco, because of the damage that was done, it was not extensive in the city itself, but there was a lot of building facades and damage to exteriors of buildings. So construction trucks were often going down residential areas or streets that had not normally done that. And the vibration caused by the big truck driving down their street caused something to bounce off a shelf or a picture to fall. And so we have to consider all sorts of normal explanations because he's trying to look for what's really going on. <clears throat> so like you said, you just don't run out and that's, you, you shouldn't anyway. That's, that's true. So now, so now we talked about, so now I want you to talk about the difference between a ghost, a haunting and a porter guys. Okay. So we, we have, you know, looked at, people in my field and starting well before the founding of the society for psychical research, which is a, the British organization that was started in 1882, which by the way, still exists, uh, publishes a great magazine called paranormal review and a great okay. journal. Uh, and I really encourage people to look up the SPR It's society for psychical research and consider joining and supporting. Them. That's a, that's in England, um, right? Um, Lloyd? It's in England, but, you know, I, I get the magazine and the journal, oh, yeah. and I have access. Cool thing is I've got access. Um, when you join, you get access to the to 130-plus years' worth of all their materials yeah. via, you know, the Internet. So it's really a deal. It's a great deal. Um, so since that time, before them, actually, uh, okay. and through the SPR and, and the American Society, we learned that there were, based on, you know, people have an experience, we, we call ghostly, and we learned that there were three kinds of things, really. You could separate them out. So there's the interactive type. So somebody sees or feels or hears or, or experiences what we would call a ghost, a human figure. Um, and typically, you see them, and it's pretty clear that they see you. There's an awareness there. There's, you can tell that this is interactive, and in fact, it is interactive. People sometimes have conversations with them, or you know, the ghost will say something to them directly that means something. So those kinds of figures, we would consider the, I, the evidence that consciousness survives death. So think of that as a spirit after the death of the person, and mm-hmm. we call those apparitions, apparitions okay. because the word ghost is kind of highly charged. Then hauntings, uh, as an overall category, refer to places. Um, apparitions refer to people or perhaps pets, but hauntings refer to places, places that have phenomena that may seem very similar to an apparition. You may see a figure. You may see action happening. People have reported um, years ago, I spoke to some extras from Ted Turner's uh, miniseries shoot for TNT. Uh, they did a Gettysburg miniseries, and people were camping out on the battlefield at Gettysburg, Civil War reenactors, and many of them had experiences throughout, you know, throughout the entire shoot in the mm-hmm. evening, at night, or even in, uh, sometimes during the day, where they'd see something like soldiers fighting that were not the actors, and they'd hear gunshots and cannon fire, and it was pretty clear to these guys who were calling us uh, that after a few experiences, they realized there was no way these were actually apparitions or ghosts because they were just doing the same thing over and over again. As to them, it was more exciting. They are actually seeing, as far as they were concerned, a snippet of history, a recording mm-hmm. of part of the Battle of Gettysburg. And that's what a haunting is. A haunting is a recording that's in the environment and that we somehow pick up. Um, the most common kind of haunting that people experience is, uh, happens to people who do house hunting. And you walk into a house and you get a good or a bad vibe about the house. And actually, if you press the real estate person taking you in there, you could get an idea that the family living there or the persons living there um, are good, you know, are, are, you know, they're getting a divorce, so they're leaving a real bad negative vibe there, or they're really a happy family and they're leaving a real positive vibe there. That's in the environment. It's something you are picking up. We would call that a residual haunting or just plain haunting for that. 
And, and, and one misconception is that hauntings um, are always of dead people. And that's like saying that every movie is of dead people, not just old movies from the 40s. So these recordings get made when people are alive, which means that some hauntings are actually the people who you might see as a, as a, as a figure. That person may still be alive somewhere else. They just left a, a recording behind, just like an actor leaves a recording behind in a movie. So that's, those are the hauntings. That's and interesting. Then the third so category, they could be alive somewhere yeah. else. That's interesting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, as an example, a classic haunting would be, you know, somebody moves into a house and, they, and they might even know that there was a, a murder there. And at some, every so often they see the murder being recreated. They see the person, you know, somebody stabbing or shooting someone else. Uh, we had a case like that back in the 80s <clears throat> up in Portland, Oregon, where the couple bought the house actually at a huge discount because there had been a murder there. And their relatives, they didn't tell their relatives about it, but their relatives that came to stay with them occasionally would see this scene of this guy killing this woman. And it would just simply play out. And as soon as she apparently died, it stopped. And it would happen mm-hmm. at the same time in the afternoon, which is the time that the actual killing happened. The problem is that the killer was still alive. He was in jail. So the recording was That's made, highly, highly emotional recording, but, he, you know, but it doesn't have to be a dead person that's involved. That, no, that's something. Thank you for making yeah. that clear. Sure. I didn't realize that. <clears throat> so yeah, where do so we the leave third off category. The third, again? yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, so the third category is poltergeist phenomena. And a poltergeist, and that term, uh, some people are crediting Martin Luther with actually coming up with that term, going back that far, and maybe go back Luther. further than that. But really? Yeah. Yeah, it, wow. it it just means it just means noisy ghost. It's just tra- when you translate it from the German, Geist means ghost. Um, okay. And really, it's a label that was applied even back then to situations where they didn't see a ghost or even nobody actually experienced a ghost. Nobody experienced a haunting. They only experienced physical things moving around, breaking, flying, you know, stuff like that. So purely physical things, which is unusual even in apparition cases. Um, and, it, and those physical things can be, of course, observed by almost anybody. So in an apparition or haunting case, you could have 15 people in the room and only three have the experience or 10 have the experience, and they may even experience both those things differently. But when we're talking about poltergeist, if you have 10 people or 15 people in the room and things are moving, if you're looking in the right direction, you're going to see it because it's a physical thing. It's not a psychic thing mm. that's happening. And what, um, starting with, Going back to the early part of the 20th century, a gentleman by the name of Nandor Fodor, who was a Hungarian psychoanalyst, um, well-respected, well-known, who actually uh, wrote books in the psychology world and psychiatry world. He also did a lot of investigating of, of uh, ghosts and poltergeist-type cases. And he's the first person who really pointed to a possible psychological um, model of poltergeist and that was taken up by William Roll and J.G. Pratt in the late 50s, and they figured out that poltergeist phenomena typically surrounds and relates to a living person in the lo- location, the household, or the workplace. And if you remove that living person from the situation, nothing happens. Uh, with that person there, things c- might happen at certain times. And the physical things that happen relate to the psychology of that one person, and often, in about 70% of the cases, that individual is undergoing some sort of emotional, um, psychological stress. Uh, and this is their outlet. The outlet is like a telekinetic temper tantrum. Uh, the, um, I think thanks to Stephen King, more than anybody else, we have this idea, stereotype of a teenage girl being responsible, when in fact um, 60% of poltergeist cases seem to be in the 12-year-old to 25-year-old range. So that includes teens, but also goes through adolescence. And then we also have out of the total poltergeist cases, when, we, when they've looked at it, they found that about 30% might have, rather than stress, it has to do with something going on in the brain, often epilepsy or epileptic-like activity in the brain. Mm-hmm. So we're really mm-hmm. dealing with living people, not yeah. dead people. Yeah. 
no search words. Right. And could you talk about the case study that you <clears throat> put in a book about the woman with her son? Remember that one? Um, so are we her talking son was about having emotional the, problems and they, it was a dark figure that was at the bottom of the bed. I think that was the one. <clears throat> there was one. Oh, that one. Yeah, that was my first case. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was, that was the first case I had with a couple of my fellow students at JFK university, actually going mm-hmm. back to my first semester in grad school. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And the report was that, um, this family was a woman. She, her, her, she had been separated, got divorced from her husband when her younger kids, um, who were at the time 16, she had uh, twin fraternal twin son and daughter, and she had two older daughters. And when the two, two of them were, I think one year old, uh, she ended up with a divorce and ended up raising the kids on her own. Um, so she had three daughters, she had one son and somewhere, um, not too, a few years before she called us at the university, she had had some experiences with things moving around. And this was intermittent, but it was actually kind of focused more um, probably a year before she, she called us that she had seen the figure of a man in black armor, like medieval armor, like the Black Knight from yes. King Arthur's stories. She had seen that figure at the foot of her bed. And her 16-year-old daughter, um, who at the time was a little younger, had also seen the figure. And even her two older daughters, when they were visiting from college or or home, had seen things happen as well. Uh, Her son was mostly in and out of juvenile hall or places to deal with juvenile delinquents because he just was not well-behaved at all. Um, So he was not around when these things happened. And during one of her viewings of this figure, she saw the visor lift and saw her son's face uh, on this black night. So when uh, Tom Malone and I, the student and I, got there, the, we did a few visits. And the uh, first one was myself and this one student. Then we went back there. Four of us went back the second time. But Tom and I were there. Um, it was just a youngest daughter uh, and her mother and, you know, one of the things we do is always because witness testimony can be a little bit touchy sometimes is we interview them together. Then we interview them separately. We have them walk us around the house and show us where things happened. Uh, After that, I got to talk to a social worker who worked with the son. uh, And it was, that was an interesting eye opening kind of thing. But on our first visit, we also wanted a little background on the kids and got, I, I even went, all through the house to look for other explanations for things, for the movement of objects, not for the Black Knight, but for the movement of objects. Went under the house, and I found some old toys of the boys. One, it was a shield and a sword and a cape. And then she said, well, her son used to like to play knight in shining armor when he was a kid. So that was kind of an interesting revelation, because we certainly did not think there was a, knight of a, there was a ghost of a medieval knight in northern California, maybe a conquistador but not a medieval knight. That would not make any sense whatsoever. Um, There was a really interesting comment she made at the end of the uh, interview that first night um, was, you know, can you think of ever seeing that kind of black knight anywhere else in pictures or anything like that? She said, you know, if I hadn't, uh, if this hadn't happened, so I think the first time it happened was 1976 um, or very early 77. She said, if I hadn't, if I had seen Star Wars first, she would have thought that it was all her imagination because the Black Knight looked like Darth Vader. And the fact is that there's a reason why Darth Vader looks the way Darth Vader does. He is the Jungian archetype for the shadow figure, for the Black Knight. The Black Knight oh. is, a, is an archetype. Okay. So that was kind of a, a key comment. And then we talked, when we talked to the older daughters and they said they, they really hadn't experienced everything the mother said they had, they were just kind of humoring her. Um, there was some evidence that there was some real psychic activity going on. The younger daughter did see the Black Knight once, not twice, like her mother said. Uh, and it really boiled down to a psychological projection. Um, she wanted something to blame her son's behavior on. She was blaming everything that son was, all of his misbehavior on the Black Knight. 
And that was pretty clearly coming from her after we got through the case. So she not only caused her stress, not only caused the physical things to happen in the house, um, the stress was all around the son, but also to project something into the mind of her daughter, um, a figure that would take the blame. Yeah, that that was really interesting when I read that. Now, now you mentioned too, and I I want your uh, opinion on this about psychometry. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so psychomet- psychometry is um, a really interesting ability. Uh, frankly, courses in that involve anything to do with how to become more psychic—that's the first right. thing I teach people. Yeah. It's, it's one something. of the. It's the. It's it's like the easiest thing for people to learn. It's it's amazing how easy it is for people to learn this. Yeah. So, for for folks who in the on the audience who may not know, psychometry is the ability to touch or hold an object, and get some information about its its owner and its history. And it's a very you know it's a very common ability. Um, and again, people get the vibe. They touch something, let's say an antique, and get a really good or bad vibe on it. I've been I've been out watching people in sometimes in antique stores when I'm in there and I see people like touch something and jerk back. Like it mm-hmm. gave them an electric shock. And, and it's always fun. You know, sometimes I, if I feel comfortable walking up to the person asking them, um, they'll say they got a really weird feeling from this thing. They don't want to touch it again. So, uh, and then I, you see other people who are just like touching something and they're practically caressing it. Like, Oh my God, this is really cool. So there's, it seems that, that objects hold information and that we're capable of picking it up. Um, even in one of my archaeology, my first archaeology class, we had a guest speaker. This is at Northwestern, and he's showing pictures of a dig in, in Egypt. And at one point, he shows an item that he said, now this, place, this item was out of place. It was Roman marble from 300 years before the Romans ever had any contact with the Egyptians as far as we knew. So we had our team psychic do some psychometry on it which caused a little bit of a stir, by the way, in the classroom when he said, because he said it very matter-of-factly. Yeah. And it turned out, I talked to him after, talked to him afterwards. A lot of, a lot of archaeologists, you know, if, if they have either a, a team member or they bring in someone who does psychometry, they will, they, they make use of it. Why not? Yeah, well, yeah. You know, if the person's wrong, the person's wrong. But sometimes they get really valid information, and this, the psychic, the really valid information about where this item came from and how it even got there. It's like telling the story of the item. You know what I mean? That they get that and they yeah, can tell totally. the story of the item. And I think it's because I learned that too, and I, I really enjoy it because it really does. It really helps. Um, and then you talk about dowsing too. I was looking at that, dowsing. Dowsers. Yeah, so dowsing, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, that's something, interestingly enough, it's accepted folklore in some respects that dows, you know, water riches, people who right. can use a fork stick or some or dowsing rods and find water or find minerals or oil. The American Dowsing Association's been around for a very, very long time, and mm-hmm. we're not sure, you know, we're not sure if, if it's a psychic ability or it's some magnetic, uh, some way that the people are connecting with the Earth's magnetic field so they can pick up on, um, you know, anomalies or things that like a pattern that would indicate water or a pattern that would indicate a mineral deposit or oil deposit. Um, either way, it's, it's, it's beyond what normal senses normally do. And uh, <clears throat> we don't study, study dowsing per se, but we certainly um, include that in the whole possibility for, for clairvoyance. I always thought of dowsing when somebody was looking for water. Really, years ago. Yeah, I mean that's, that, what, that's what, what most most people. Yeah, that's what most people think. There was actually one of the divisions of the Marine Corps in Vietnam actually had a dowser that was looking would, would actually find uh, Viet Cong tunnels, so that they wouldn't be surprised. That's really interesting. And had had a very high success rate of finding the tunnels. Yeah, that's and it's the way they move, right? It's the way the rods would move. In different areas. Yeah, the rods and, and the rods are moving. You know, you see a lot of stuff on the ghost hunting TV shows, like the spirit. They, they claim the spirits are moving the rods. The rods oh, are moving yeah. because of minor muscle. The rods are moving because of you, not That's because what of the I spirits. They're, they're moving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something called idiomotor response. Okay. Um, it's unconscious. It's unconscious, which is what dowsing kind of comes through the unconscious, apparently, like a lot of ESP does. Mm-hmm. Um. 
I did see um, in a book, and I do want to, it caught my eye about animals, too. Do they have some type of um, PSI or anything, you know, animals? Yeah, animal psi is... Yeah, animal psi. Yeah, there there have been studies in the past. Robert Morris did some studies back in the 70s and early 80s with with animal psi, and a few other people have as well. Um, and there's some good <clears throat> good dotal evidence that animals, some animals certainly can use their psychic abilities, but also animals, you got to remember that animals have really heightened senses of other types. Mm-hmm. Um, the sniffer on a dog and a cat is a lot more, more um, sensitive than ours. Um, taste buds are, are different. You know, they can taste certain things that are different. So it, it's hard to know whether a dog or cat, a pet, you know, is being psychic or not, because you really can't get them to take a test. Uh, But we do have those circumstances where a dog gets left behind when family moves, you know, runs away and the family has to move or the cat has to move, the family has to move and the cats run away. And lo and behold, weeks later, the dog or the cat shows up at their new home, having crossed many states perhaps, without having any information whatsoever about where the, where the family went. You know, they flew, so there's no way that there is even a, a scent trail that's there. So those kinds of things happen. Um, on the other side of it, I get calls from people saying, you know, I'm pretty sure my house is haunted. My dog stares off at this one spot all the time. And I have to say, I've had dogs. <laughs> you know, sometimes dogs do do that. And more importantly, if there's something in the walls that they're hearing or, or smelling, that's where they're going to stare. Okay, that's interesting. It's it's not necessarily yeah. a psychic thing. No. You know, uh, on the other hand, on the other hand, um, I've had situations where you know folks saw, they sense, they feel like a relative is still there, um, and the dog behaves as if the relative is there at certain times. So there there's kind of a little bit of both. You have to kind of be careful about. I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that was pretty interesting when I read it about the animals. Now, we have a call, so would you like taking this call? Okay. We can see what they're going to ask you. Okay, thank you. Sure, absolutely. Hi, welcome to True Seekers. What can we help you with? Hello? Hello? Hi, welcome to True Seekers. What can we help you with tonight? Hi, um, I wanted to um, cast away like two weeks ago, and I was just wondering if you could say anything or have any help. Well, actually, we're not really doing readings tonight. We're talking about parapsychology. Oh, sorry. Okay, I just okay. turned it on. So. But thank, thank you. you very much for listening. Thank you. Okay. So now we want to get to um, an area that you you covered in the book about the Amityville Horror. And, you know, and I think that people should know about that. And I, it was really good how you, you expressed it in the book. Yeah, so this is all from my book, ESP's Hauntings and Poltergeists. And the Amityville case, uh, which everybody's familiar with in some way, shape, or form, um, you know, uh, a couple of my colleagues investigated that. That case, uh, in fact, I talked to a number of people who were involved in investigating the Amityville case from the parapsychological side. And also a couple of journalists um, who investigated it from their perspective, uh, looking at the book that Jansen wrote and the house and, and all sorts of, and, and checking out things that were in the book. Um, first thing that most people don't know is that Jansen, who got the deal to write the book, was never went to the house. In fact, the family moved out after a few weeks. Uh, the house was a site of a mass murder by a young man, killed his family, and he's still imprisoned to this day. But what the, what was reported, uh, and there was first reports in the media there, and it became almost a media circus, but it was really reported pretty much after the family moved out. And a lot of the supposed facts in the book don't match up, didn't even match up with what the Lutzes said later on uh, with the story. Um, Certain things could not have happened that were actually in the book, such as they claimed to have seen a demon by the light of the full moon, when in fact they didn't didn't even live in the house during a full moon. So there were little bits and pieces that were there. 
my colleagues and summer six mentors at the American Society for Psychical Research, uh, Alex Tanis, who is an amazing psychic, uh, and Dr. Carlos Osis, an amazing researcher and investigator, did investigate the place. And Alex actually psychically picked up, and this is like the whole haunting thing, and, or psychometry. He picked up on the murders and where they occurred, because he, he often worked with police and was able to describe mm-hmm. some in-depth stuff about that. But then he found a book contract. So this wasn't too long after the family moved out. Apparently they already had a book. They were going, going back and forth to the house. They already had a book contract, according to Tannis, Alex, um, mm. which was suspicious in and of itself. And they could find no evidence of the flies or the bleeding walls or all the stuff that was supposedly going on. Um, another investigator, uh, George Kokoris, also no, no evidence of that. Uh, there were some inconsistencies in the story. Now, um, at the same time, in fact, what I described in the book in the, in the chapter is that Jerry Salfin, one of my colleagues at the time at JFK University, had also been involved in the investigation. And he was there um, as Osis and Tanis were leaving. And Osis and Tanis left because a bunch of media showed up with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And Jerry stayed. Jerry Salfin stuck stick around, but Alex and um, Dr. Rosas didn't want to be there while the Warrens were there. They were uh, a difficult piece of uh, a difficult pair for people to deal with within our field because of their mm-hmm. uh, typical um, way of finding demons everywhere, even in cases where there were no, where there literally was nothing paranormal happening. So there is a lot of hype around that case. Um, and the thing about calling it a true story and even the movie, the movie diverged from the book. This is not unusual. Um, you know, movies have to shorten a book and they will sometimes take artistic license. The book took artistic license with probably what the Lutzes told them. Um, but it came out later on, William Weber, who was an attorney for the DeFeo family, the family that had previously owned the house, sold the house to the Lutzes, did all the paperwork with them, and it, he claimed that over some bottles of wine, as they were going through the deal, they, uh, they talked about the place must be haunted because of the mass murder, and boy, this, would, this could make a lot of money. And uh, he even sued them, from what I understand, for not getting his piece of the action. Um, part of it was because The Exorcist had been such a, a popular movie in, before that. So there are a lot of factors that show that this was not a genuine situation, although I would not be surprised if the family moved into the place and picked up on both the negative emotions and even a little bit of residual haunting, a little bit of recording of DeFeo killing his family. Um, That kind of haunting, I would actually not be surprised it actually happened. And I would also think that that would probably scare them off. Mm-hmm. It's just all the stuff that went on in the books. There were no actual ghosts there. And the people who bought the house, by the way, later on, and who live in it today, the, people, the other people who live in today, no one had any other experience in the house since the Lutzes. Hmm. I'm just, I'm so just I, I have to caution people whenever they, whenever they see a movie that says, you know, and these days they're actually using the phrase inspired by a true story as opposed to based on a true story. But anytime you see anything, even something historical, you've got to know that they are dramatizing and changing things um, to suit the vision of the filmmaker. Just like on the ghost hunting TV shows, it's the producers who, who have the finished product, not the people doing the investigations and certainly not the people who own the, the places they're going to. So there's a lot of bad information out there. There's a, yeah, there's a lot of misconception out there that people yeah. need to know the truth about it. Yeah, and if people are really interested in in parapsychology and anything yeah. to do with psychic phenomena, I'm I'm about to start teaching a class. Um, we do online classes through the Rhine Research Center. That's R H I N E dot org. Uh, Rhine, the Rhine Center is the old Duke Parapsychology Laboratory. Uh, Duke University had studies for for decades on ESP and psychokinesis and other things. And when J.B. Ryan, who founded the, the laboratory, retired in 1965, he, he founded an, uh, a nonprofit 
organization and research lab off campus, which is what the Rhine Center is. It's actually the longest running research laboratory uh, in the United States. Uh, and we offer online classes, which people can do the lecture live or, or watch the recording and take part in online forums and all that other fun stuff you get with online classes. And I'm teaching an introduction to parapsychology class starting on May 6th. So uh, if people have a real interest, the courses are not that expensive at all. Um, this is the one we're offering this, this uh, semester, and we'll be offering a whole bunch of other topics as we have in the last few years over the, next, uh, the rest of the year. In fact, I just finished teaching an advanced investigations class. Can they go online and sign up at the, at the Rhine? Yes. Okay. Yes, so it's Rhine. Again, it's R-H-I-N-E dot org, and okay. that's the easiest one to remember. Uh, or you can go to rhineedu.org. Uh, but if you go to the main website, you'll see a lot of great information. You will see a link to the education classes. Just go right there, and you'll see the intro to course. Intro course. Uh, the Rhine Center is another great organization to join uh, because you get access. Not only are you supporting research, but you actually get access to a huge media library. They've been hosting lectures for a few, several years from great people in the field, in and around the field, and they put those videos up. So it's, it's a great thing to, to join and support. And you get a lot for your money. Yeah, I've joined And it's tax, it's tax They are a 501c3, so it's tax deductible. And um, Louisa Ryan, she, she passed on, didn't she, for a while ago, right? Yeah, but... Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, quite a while ago, JB passed uh, in the in in the early '80s. In fact, both of them passed in the '80s. That's what I got. And they were real, really dedicated, really dedicated. Incredibly, <clears throat> yeah. Yes. JB Ryan was more the experimentalist. Louisa was more of the real life psy, real life psychic stuff. She they yeah. made a great pair. They did, and I just want to mention this other book that you have out is Psychic Dreaming that we really right. didn't talk too much about, but um, can you just give us a brief uh, description or what's going on in this book, please? Yeah, sure. As I mentioned at the, very top, at the top of the hour, um, that book is about dreams in general and some of, the, what, some of what we think dreams actually are and what they're for, but focuses specifically on the kinds of dreams we have that are psychic and how people recognize them, um, whether you can change the future, if you have a, a dream about the future and why you sometimes can't, even if you have a dream about the future. Um, and then also it covers telepathic dreams and dreams of ghosts and apparitions, you know, it covers a wide range and also past life dreams mm -hmm. too. So okay. it, it, it runs the gamut of all the different types of psychic phenomena or psychic experiences that people have within the dream state. I just thought of something. One more question. Um, <clears throat> reincarnation. I noticed that we talked about they like to do it with children, the, ch the children, because their minds aren't clogged on different things. Right, right. So I do have a book out on Kindle and Nook, which is a uh, reprint of my Reincarnation Channeling and Possession book. And okay. <clears throat> research in parapsychology around reincarnation has almost exclusively been around um, children, who remember past lives, previous lives, and it's because children are not contaminated by media, TV, folklore, education. There's so much stuff um, that could come out that's not really a memory of a past life. It's actually coming from a book you read. So working with kids that are, that are two to four or five years old um, around the world who spontaneously start talking about having been a past life is really useful. On top of that, we re rarely have adults who have spontaneous recall. I mean, mm -hmm. most people talk about past lives. They're talking about hypnotic regression, which is frankly doesn't provide good evidence at all from a scientific perspective. It's useful, but it doesn't provide good evidence from a scientific perspective. So yeah, so if they're interested in that, would you repeat that again? That what's on there on Kindle, so people can. Uh, sure. The book. The book is called. The book is called Reincarnation, Channeling, and Possession. And okay. actually, if you go to Amazon and put in my name, it's Lloyd with one L, L-O-Y-D, and the last name is Auerbach, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. You'll see the, all the books that I've got available there. Well, you got you have a. You, I'll say one thing about you, Lloyd. You are a wealth of information, and I want to thank you thank for you. that. And one You're more question. Welcome. This is for you. This is for you. 
and I always ask this of all my guests, when you when you look back or, you know, think about your path, who would you say inspired you? Oh, I've had a lot of inspiration over the years. I've been very fortunate to have great mentors. Um, I, in some respects, um, one person who truly inspired me and it's kind of made me more of who I am today was a guy by the name of Marcello Truzzi, who was a sociologist, sort of a skeptic, uh, but working very friendly with our field, and also a mentalist and psychic entertainer. So he he inspired me and kind of guided me in in many ways uh, since I met him in the early 80s. Okay. And I just have to say, I I found that fascinating. You are a mentalist yourself and a magician. Yeah. How about that? Um, yeah, it's partly that that is an outgrowth, direct outgrowth of my graduate work in parapsychology that mm-hmm. we actually had a course in, in stage magic and mentalism. And uh, I love performing. It's just a fun thing to do. That's wonderful. One more call. Let's go. Let's see who this is. Welcome to Truth Seekers. How may we help you? Yes, hi. I just, um, I just called in. My name's Laura. I literally just called in. Okay, Laura. Are you giving readings? No, we're not doing readings, but thank you for calling in, okay? Okay, thank you. We appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, Lloyd, and we want to thank you for being our special guest tonight, and you have enlightened all the truth seekers around the world. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. You're very welcome. Well, that concludes our show for tonight, and I would like to thank all the truth seekers around the world for listening. And until we meet again, may you be the light that helps others see.